0: Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of March 2021. Welcome to Episode 70 of this series, a.k.a. Work from Home Journal Number 13. Oh boy. Happy anniversary? But, as of this recording, I have received my first COVID vaccine jab. So maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe. The concept of this show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I read since the last time we've had one of these brief chats. It should make this pretty much the books I read during January. These are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts are not exactly spoilers for this podcast, since those are just lists. And here, there's a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, there's a little feedback. On the February episode, we heard from faithful feedbacker Sir Luke Giaconetti, my compadre in... uh, making last month hashtag Romance Comics Month. Professor, I wanted to drop a quick line to let you know that I enjoy your coverage of the inaugural Romance Comics Month on the Comics Reading Journal. It may have started as a joke during our email correspondence. Yes, that may in fact be the case. <laughs> but I can say that I enjoyed expanding my genre Comics Horizons in February. My main takeaway from reading romance comics all month was the art. Like you, I'm more of a story-first kind of comics reader, but in the case of romance comics, similar to other genre books, the art is a big selling point. One which jumps to mind immediately is Big John Romita, whose work I saw in the pages of Young Love from DC, as collected in the Showcase Presents Phone Book reprint. I legitimately had no idea that Romita was doing work for DC in the early to mid-60s. But his work, as always, is superlative. Seeing him tackle real-world scenarios, mostly in and around a hospital, which makes sense as he was the artist for the recurring Mary Robin R.N. strip. And that is a real treat. You can especially see how this would inform his depictions of Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane, and all those folks in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. Like a lot of genre books, there were some story elements and beats, which became fairly repetitive after reading so many in so short a time. But at the same time, there was creativity as well. I read a few issues of one of DC's gothic titles from 1971 to 1972, the short-lived Sinister House of Secret Love, which was a wonderfully moody mix of romance and horror-slash-mystery, the latter being a strength of DC at the time. Another standout was a public domain title, Love Mystery, from Fawcett, combining romance with a crime comic to produce something like a romantic thriller. This title also featured a noteworthy superhero artist handling the art in the form of Sheldon Moldoff, best known to me as one of the definitive Hawkman and Hawkgirl artists. These romance comics were fun for the most part, ranging from sudsy and melodramatic to silly and a little heartwarming, especially the Archie collections. I'm glad to have done this seasonal reading. Over the last few years, I have found myself increasingly leaning towards genre comics over superheroes, and given this excuse to expand that reading, I was more than glad to do it. Keep up the great work here on the Journal, and looking forward to hearing about what you read in March, in the next episode. Thanks, Luke. Always good to hear from you, Sir Luke. And we heard from Dr. Ange, whose message included an apology for sending me The Eaters, a Peter Milligan book that I was not a fan of. Now, this response I'm going to make applies to Ange and to everyone else who has ever sent me a comic book in the mail who has ever participated in the hashtag comic book circle of life and that is feel free to send me comics you think i'll like of course but also feel free to send me stuff you just want out of the house and don't feel bad if you miss the mark thinking i'll like something that i end up not liking that just happens no pressure no pressure the Doctor continues, commenting that it seemed to be another great month of comics. As for the books you read, glad you got a current Legion book, as that Bendis run has been very solid. I'd recommend reading more. And cool for you to read the Burn lori Lamara story again. Over at Martin Gray's blog, I did a guest post on that very issue back in 2014, breaking down the homages and differences from the original. Well, Doctor, if I remember, I will post on the blog post for this episode a link to that blog post. And as always, thanks for that feedback. And we got one sent in by, well, sorry, I guess transcribed by Michael Bradley, former podcaster and maybe future podcaster, who knows? Well... Michael was contacted by a personage who was not thrilled with a comment or two that I made last episode goodbye professor allen as short-time listener to none of relatively geeky podcasts me very happy to not hear warm words about bizarro cut out of episode 69 of comics reading journal With your hatred of Dr. Doom very vague, me had low hopes you would hate Bizarro in a different way. We have so much not in common. Plan to save world from villains, unlike Boy Scout and Stretchy Pants. Handsome faces. Both are very understood by everyone. It and big-time comedy. Me want you to not know enough there are hard feelings, and then me will still not listen to show each episode, even though Relatively Geeky presents Bizarro Speak, likely coming very soon. Until Fish Girl Lori becomes Reed Richards' one true enemy, no make mine, Relatively Geeky. Hello, Bizarro number one. Thank you for that, Michael Bradley, and thanks, uh, Mr. Bizarro, And social media support for that episode came from Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics, Old School Ross, Paul from The Collected Edition, Karen from the Between the Pages blog, Randy Watts, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Sir Luke Giaconetti and Gene Hendricks, both from the Two True Freaks podcast network, Chris Lydon, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Vic in Phoenix, Derek William Crabb, that big old fanhole, Mike Peacock, Pat Sampson from the Long Box Crusade, Al Sedano, and our reigning listeners of the year, the Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. Thank you all. And now, on to the books I read last month, and as we do on this show, I'm going to categorize those books, and first are the issues I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. For quarterbend 166, I read a couple of books from the Impact line, The Comet, number one, and The Web, number two. And comics I read for listening to podcasts. And there seem to be more of these every month. Thank you, DC Universe app. So to listen to the unnumbered episodes 246 through 249 of From Crisis to Crisis, co-hosted by podcasting's Michael Bailey, I read Action Comics 721 and 722, Adventures of Superman 534 and 535, Superman 112, and Superman, the Man of Steel, 56 and 57. In these issues, Superman and Lois have broken up, and Lord Satanus is back in town. Of these, the Man of Steel issue stands out, as it is a terrific, Mixius Pidalic issue, and really ties in brilliantly the plot point of the recent breakup of the Lois and Clark relationship. And to listen along with Episodes 83 and 84 of The Legion Clubhouse, I read Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 241 through 244, which included the very good Earth War storyline. And to listen to Batman Nightcast number 36, I read Detective Comics 407, which wrapped up the original Man-Bat story, and Batman 454, part of Dark Knight, Dark City. And for listening along with episode 45 of The Overlooked Dark Knight, I read Batman 424 and 425, a couple of issues featuring Jason Todd, written by Jim Starlin. And for listening along with Tim Price, the Podcrasher, on his new Outcasters show, which he does it with Ashford and Sarah, episode 7 I read Batman and the Outsiders number seven from 1983, which wrapped up the Cryonic Man storyline. And to listen along with Laurel, aka Mountain Flower, and her crew, on episode 48 of the Huntress podcast, I read the Justice Society story from Adventure Comics 465. I actually read the whole comic, but I do think the JSA story was the best one in the issue. So moving on to new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we do indeed sort of have one. I read a ton from a series last time, and when I learned that the next issue, this month's issue, was actually the last issue, I went ahead and hoopla'd that latest one, the final issue, Something is Killing the Children, number 15, written by James Tynan IV. And they say that more issues are coming eventually, but this definitely wraps up the story arc. And it does it pretty well. Not a lot of fighty-fighty action. Most of that was in issue 14. This is a lot of denouement, wrapping up, character work. But overall, this is an excellent uh, series. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Mike, the Peacock Peacock of Justice's First Dawn and Count Dante's Black Dragons aside, he's getting out of the podcasting game, at least for a while. And as part of that, as part of his general downsizing of his comic collection, he sent me, very generously, a good-sized box of comics and trades last year. And among those books were Wild Cats 5 through 7, From the Heart, of the image era. By that, I mean that Issue 5 was full of fold-out pages, including a set that folded out to a four-page spread. This is Jim Lee at his Jim Lee-est. Generally, that doesn't work for me overwhelmingly, but I can't deny that there is an energy and even a style to books like this. I've never bought an issue of Wildcats, and I don't anticipate ever buying an issue of Wildcats. But these, I've read many books from this era that were much worse. I can definitely say that. There was an energy, there was a passion here. Tom Panarese, as part of his uncollecting process, sent me some stuff, including Zen, Intergalactic Ninja Number no. 3, from Entity Comics from 1994. This was a black-and-white comic, but still managed to seem extreme. Not Wildcats extreme, but pretty close. A few of my internet buddies expressed their fandom for this title. But for me, let me just say I can see why Tom would want it to be no longer in his collection, shall we say. Manuel Carmona sent a care package earlier in the year, and that included Crystar, Crystal Warrior number 9 from 1984. And the problem with fantasy epics, of which I am a fan, is that there are times when you have talky bits, the Council of Elrond bits. And those can be tense, they can be dramatic, but when pulled out of the larger saga that they're a part of, they can be a little slow. And that's a lot of what happened to be happening in this issue. Shogun Warriors, number 12 from 1980, actually similar to Kristar. Here I'm diving again into a world a number of issues in. But this one worked more for me. The character bits were relatable. There's a jealousy subplot, a relationship triangle. And then the action... And drama, that was explained, it was laid out really well. I was only familiar with this title from Sir Luke's podcast, Earth, Destruction Directive, but I thought that this was a very solid, easy-to-follow read. And Countdown to Infinite Crisis, the 80-page special that gave us Morgan Edge's deviousness, the Omax in the sky, some bad things happening to Blue Beetle, and Batman still not getting over the events of Identity Crisis. And got a very nice care package recently from Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, Hendrix, which included some interesting books, including Robotech 2, The Sentinels, The Malcontent Uprising, number one, from Eternity Comics, from 1989. Now that I've read the first seven Robotech novels, I had some context for this comic and knew the general setting and the characters, and I quite enjoyed this one. And a comic from before I was born, and now falling apart. I mean, the comic was falling apart, not me. Well, both of us are, I suppose, in our own ways. But that's not the point. The point is that I read Showcase 51 from 1964, featuring two-adventure stories starring King Faraday. Globetrotting, epic, international tales of intrigue and spy-type stuff. Not groundbreaking for Silver Age DC by any means, but a very fun read. And a book that came in via Sir Luke Jackinetti, Iron Man Annual Number no. 3 from 1976. This one combined Man-Thing and Molecule Man, and lots of strange goings-on down in Florida. This one was wild, it was bizarre, it was strange, it was florida horrific. Kind of reminded me of my buddy Shag. The irredeemable Shag. Sorry, the irredeemable Shag. Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army. Sent a care package in recently, including a few Silverline comics. That's the comics imprint run these days by Roland Mann. These books included Twilight Grim, number one, a vampire book that weaves in concepts of the haves and have-nots. For a small press book, it was very uh, professional-looking, and it had a story and a world that was intriguing. And Divinity Number 1, also from Silver Line, by Barb Kalberg and R.A. Jones. This is about a young girl, maybe ten, who discovers that she has the power to bring dead things back to life. And when the military learns of this, and comes a calling right at the end of Issue 1, you sense that things are about to get a whole lot more complicated for little Miss Divinity, and her family. From half-price books, back when they had quarter bins, I read Booster Gold number 16 from 2009, which has Enemy Ace on the cover, both as a big figure on the cover, and even the words Enemy Ace are posted over the words Booster Gold. Booster is bouncing around time looking for a magical sword, and this issue he spends in the time of the Great War. Hanging with, fighting with, and perhaps earning the respect of the enemy ace himself. Not totally a one-off, but it did pretty much serve as one, and a pretty decent one at that. And from Half Price Books, although this one was more than a quarter, four times more as a matter of fact, I read the oversized Hunt for Wolverine. I don't know what's up with me regarding the X-Men family, because I've never dived in, but I just can't stop buying individual issues here and there. Whatever. It's crazy. But here I am, confessing. And this one was... fine. And from the world's greatest comics Black Friday weekend sale, books that cost me... are you ready? Ten cents! I read The Vision, Chapter 1. I like this character, so for a dime, what could go wrong? Well, it was from 1994, so yeah, The Vision had abs, like lots of them. And not just abs, but extreme abs and musculature. And for a synthesoid, that's just strange. Oh, the story? That wasn't that great either. And one of the books I missed from the DC Warner Brothers crossover series was Lex Luthor, Porky Pig. So I picked that up, and you know what? It was pretty darn funny. It was a biting story, the kind that Mark Russell specializes in. The business stuff was right on, funny. And the comic book cliches, they worked as well. Thoroughly enjoyed this one. The next one was more like three for a dollar, but that's still a pretty great World's Greatest Comics deal. Another one from before I was born and completely falling apart, and all the same comments I made before apply. This was the gold key adaptation of the film Mutiny on the Bounty. It has been a while since I've seen the movie, but this certainly seemed to hit on all the main points, plot-wise, that I remember. And more importantly on its own for what it was, as a 32-page comic book. It worked. It was a compelling story with enough drama and characterization to be effective. And then some kids' books that I read mostly from Sir Rob Lance's care packages, and also some from Pulp Reality. I read Yosemite Sam 9 and 25, World of Archie, Double Digest 78 and 98, Life with Archie, 95 and 135. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, 13. Betty and Veronica, 118 and 127. Archie's Joke Book, 201. And Popeye, 115. Life with Archie is the more adventurous title in that line. Less stuff happening at the chocolate shop or the high school. So here you have the gang... Having a run in with a mad scientist, and there's also a nice lesson about boating safety. Archie's joke book is an interesting one as well, simply a collection of one page or in a few cases half page gag strips. No plot, no character exploration, just setup and punchline, setup and punchline, setup and punchline, etc etc. And that, when you're in the right mood, can really work. So, all right, uh, time to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in March. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait, be right back. I need my Avengers... Omnibus, uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spitaro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah! Sorry, sorry, I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. (laughs) Ow! Ow, who put Cap's shield there? Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would ya? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! <laughs> oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, they just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? You too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvax Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and... Oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? (laughs) Hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And we're back talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And I spent a little time getting barbaric in March, reading a run of books that I got from Manuel Carmona and the 50-cent sale at World's Greatest Comics. From the Marvel run, I read Conan the Barbarian, 53, 54, 55, 122, and 269. Four of the five of these were written by Roy Thomas, and those are very good, as is to be expected. But what I like about Conan is that during his long fictional life, he fulfilled so many different roles that there's a huge range of the types of stories that can be told. Pirate, king, mercenary, tribal leader, solitary wanderer, and many, many more. You can have Conan fighting sorcerers, slaveholders, warlords. I really like this character, and especially when Roy is writing him. And I also read from the Dark Horse run, Conan 7, 9, 14, and 16, all from Kurt Busiak and Carry Nord. These were all well worth the 50 cents that I paid at Pulp Reality. All of these are from the younger days of Conan's life, from his days as a thief and a hired sword. Drama, action, fighting, romance, fighting, and action. In- included among these was an issue that featured an epic battle with the huge snake-dragon god being thoth Amon. And what else do you really want from Conan? And related to Conan, I suppose, another character created by R.E.H., I read Marvel Premiere 34, featuring Solomon Kane. In this one, he fights not Gorilla Grodd, but the Gorilla God. Not a bad jungle story, interesting character. I think that this is the first, maybe, maybe second, Solomon Kane story I've ever read, and it was about what I expected. It was not great, but it was definitely solid enough. I have some books that Kirk Spencer sent me, including some Kickstarter books and rewards for projects that he has backed over the years, such as Aster of Pan. This is a 200-page OGN from France, which tells an interesting story of a rebellion in a post-apocalyptic land. The final battle is based on a competition. So this is not quite as violent as The Hunger Games, but it's kind of a similar idea. And the victory of the outcasts, led by the tough chick Aster, is what, we learn, brought the land together in peace. Interesting, with a lot of pages devoted to the playing of this game, and a cool lead character, a fun and interesting story. And the strange talent of Luther Strode number 1 the start of an image miniseries from 2011, and it's a story we can all understand. After ordering a Charles Atlas style of workout, Luther somehow acquires enhanced physical abilities, but he is not the responsible Peter Parker type, lacking the, let's go with, moral clarity of your traditional hero type. This fella is a little more Brightburn. I picked up some digital issues from a great sale in American mythology. It was probably Kirk or Luke who clued me into this, maybe both of them. Books I got at an average cost of well less than a quarter include The Eagle, number one, a black and white book from 2016. The story Night of a Thousand Ninjas. The black and white of the book works well here, as our lead character, Eagle, is a goth-like fella in all black. And that actually stands out even more in this setting, somehow. And, of course, the ninjas, all thousand of them, they look pretty good in black and white, too. So, overall, interesting, very interesting issue. The Filbert, factor number one, a kid's story that's pretty good other than the blatant anti-cat propaganda, that is, around here, that we will not abide. The rest of the issue, that worked out just fine. We mentioned earlier, care package sent in by Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics, and the charitable effort, Comics for Christmas. And included in, in that pack, was crimson 5, 11, and 12. That's crimson as in the color of blood. Yes, this is a vampire series that comes from Brian Augustine and Umberto Ramos. It's a vampire series from the late 90s, so it's going to be over the top, especially the extreme art style. But underneath that is a decent enough vampire story, albeit... Not an extremely original one, but I am a sucker for vampire stories, and this one, more or less, all things considered, kind of worked for me. And from the combination of Manuel Carmona and Michael Lane, I read a couple of adventures from a team, or non-team, that I haven't read a lot of. These were The Defenders, 28 and 115, From 1975 and 1983, respectively. In the first one, we got to know Starhawk. And then the later one, well, that was a mishmash of Dr. Seuss and the Wizard of Oz. And I'm not just saying that. There is a dedication at the end to Theodore Geisel, and Prince Namor wears red sneakers to escape a strange dimension. These are strange stories which I acknowledge and understand is probably, certainly, part of their charm. Related, but much more recent, I picked up for a dime The Defenders' The Best Defense, number one, from 2018. Now, this one was a lot more serious. Combination of Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, Hulk, Prince Namor. And there are definitely potential for more stories, more solid stories from this cast. And since it was 2018, this first issue only laid the barest of groundwork. And it didn't really tell a full story, I mean, like, at all. But, decent start. Last time, we talked about DC's Sword and Sorcery books, and I mentioned that I was waiting for some of those to hit the DC app, like Beowulf and Claw. Well... From the World's Greatest Comics anniversary sale, I picked up a series sort of related, in a manner of speaking, from a certain point of view. This is from 2005, from Speakeasy Comics, Beowulf 1 through 4. In this take, the character from the epic poem is still alive and looking pretty good for 1,400 years old. But when a mysterious cabal tracks him, And his old enemy, the dragon, reappears. He is brought back into service as a hero. This series ran seven issues in total, but I'm satisfied with these four that I picked up. I had never heard of this. I don't think I'd ever heard of Speakeasy Comics, but this was solid, it was professional, and it was quite enjoyable. And from the combination of world's greatest comics, Dr. Ange and Sir Iowa's Joe, I read from the five years later era, starting in 1989, Legion of Superheroes 1, 12, 19, and 21 through 24. I know, for an ongoing soap opera style of group, reading miscellaneous random issues is not necessarily going to be a satisfying narrative reading experience. This is an interesting run, and you certainly do get interesting with this. Giffen is in his full nine panel grid mode. Now, special notice has to be given to issue 12, which was given to me by Dr. Ange. He reviewed this era on the Legion of Super Bloggers site because he just loves the run so much. And issue 12, he said, might be his favorite of the run. And it certainly contains his favorite single moment of the run. So thank you, Doctor, for sharing that passion with me. And issues 21 through 24 are the quiet darkness, a nod, I suppose, to the classic Great Darkness saga. This whole run, up to this point, is decompressed storytelling, but done really well. There are so many characters in the Legion, that you can spend a little bit of time with each one, and, well, that's going to take up a lot of pages. Or in Giffen's case, also a lot of panels. And you have Darkseid in these issues, and you have Lobo. And it's just stuff that takes up pages. So it's not until the last page of issue 24 that we get a classic group shot of the entire Reconstituted Legion back and better than ever. But I think the wait was worth it. This is definitely an interesting run. It was fun to revisit, even in a hit-and-miss, read-and-issue-here-and-there process. We mentioned Sir Iowa's Joe, and in his most recent care package, he included a cool selection of books, which included Robin Hood Outlaw 4 through 6 from Zenoscope, I've read some stories featuring this character before, and this series finds the one-eyed blonde lady, Robin Loxley back in New York, just trying to live a normal life. But her past life, in an alternate dimension, just keeps coming after her. And here, she has to tackle great adversaries from that other world, and even a few who are supposedly on her side. It seems that people on all sides... Want our heroine dead. I think Robin's a really good character. Strong character. But anytime you talk Xenoscope, you have to talk about the cheesecake art. At least the cheesecake covers. And in this series, most of the covers aren't that bad. And like usual, the insides tend to be less problematic. Overall, I enjoyed these three. And after that, I checked out Hoopla for more. Robin Hood goodness, and found Grim Fairy Tales Presents Robin Hood 1-12, through 12, in which Robin and her buddy Marion take on an evil cabal of zombie-raising troll makers. Marion taps into her magical prowess to aid Robin, who finds her bow and arrows not always up to the job. And we get some really delightful off-duty moments including Marion joining a roller derby team, and the two of them going to New York Comic-Con. It's a really solid mix of one-offs and ongoing storylines, and again, I like the character. I liked these issues. And from the 50-cent sale at World's Greatest Comics, I picked up two earlier issues of a series that I read the third issue of last year. This is Retief 1 and 2, a black-and-white title from Adventure Comics, circa 1989. Retief is a literary character from many short stories written by Keith Laumer. Retief is a diplomat, or we should say here, a space diplomat. These are uh, interesting stories, uh, both the prose stories and these comic adaptations, where Retief heads to various... Space hotspots to negotiate peace deals or trade deals. But I enjoyed this because of the political and business aspects of what Retief does. But let me say, I can see where this didn't really work as a comic book, why it didn't take off necessarily. Because each issue does have a few pages of action early to set the stage, but mostly this character is about talking and Wheeling and Dealing, and then Talking Some More. Those are interesting elements of a prose short story, and I liked the adaptations, but they aren't the most action-packed or visually-based stories that I've ever seen in comic book form. Let's just put it that way. And from the combination of Iowa's Joe and Half Price Books, I read some action-packed stories. Action Comics, 470 and 600. 470 was a Terra-Man story, and a pretty good one with lots of body-switching or maybe shape-shifting shenanigans. Issue 600, the oversized 50th anniversary issue, was quite good. It was set up as five separate stories, but really they serve as five chapters of a larger story. This is all written by John Byrne, and he brings in Wonder Woman, Dark Side, Lois, Jimmy, and of course it's all Lex Luthor behind the scenes. Like I said, very good read. And from Hoopla, and you'll be hearing a lot of that here towards the end of the episode, Era Giant Days 1 through 8, a pretty funny series about a bunch of British college girls and all the shenanigans and dramas that they get into, mostly about boys and relationships and the like, but also school, studies, and just life. It's a nice mix of personalities, each gal getting into, and usually out of, her own unique scrapes. Friendship, growing up, maturity, the ups and downs of modern life for the college age set. It's all there, and I really enjoyed it. And I read a biographic OGN through Hoopla of a sports star. 21, the story of Roberto Clemente from Fanographics, Very interesting, bouncing between Clemente's childhood and growing up, and then between his baseball career. Well done. Leading up to and laying the groundwork for, spoilers, his death on a charitable mission of mercy in the offseason. And a book from the Hellboy. World Lobster Johnson, The Iron Prometheus 1 through 5, which I think was the first storyline featuring the Lobster. I like the time period of the adventures, the late 1930s, just barely pre World War II. Adventurous stuff, a nice mix of espionage and high adventure and spy stuff, with just enough paranormal and superhero action to make it work in the Mignola world. I've read Very little in the Hellboy-verse, and this, I think, was my first trade of Lobster Johnson. And I enjoyed this enough that it probably won't be my last visit to this world or these characters. I mentioned the Retief comics earlier. I also read another sci-fi comic based on prose works, in this case, the novels of Jack Campbell. From Titan Comics, this is The Lost Fleet, Corsair, 1 through 5. This is solid military sci-fi, which is Campbell's specialty. And this is a subgenre that really can work in comic form, say, more better than diplomatic sci-fi. We have the end of a centuries-long war between the Syndicate and the Alliance Empires. But remnants of the two sides have to team up to strengthen the nascent rebellion. It was grand on an epic scale, good characterizations, good political and military intrigue, very, very enjoyable read. I would recommend this one against The Lost Fleet to anyone who likes sci-fi in their comics. Again, Hoopla. This is a series I started a couple years back and picked up the most recent trade, Black Magic 12-16. through By Greg Rucca and Nicholas Scott. To be honest, I like the first two trades more, where the focus was on Rowan Black as a policewoman, a cop, who happened to be a witch. This one positioned her primarily as the witch. That was the main context, the main conflict. And she just happened to be a cop. Not that that's a bad thing. It's still high quality comics from top notch creators. It's just leaning in a direction that I prefer less. So still good, Get personally a little less enjoyable for me uh, than the prior trades in the series. And this next trade showed up on Hoopla as a free borrow in February, probably tied into Black History Month, but I didn't get around to reading it until here in March. But you know, it works for Women's History Month as well. So I read Shuri 1 through 5, this is the series where T'Challa has disappeared and Shuri searches for him, eventually taking on the mantle of Black Panther herself. There is an issue where she heads into outer space and runs across Rocket and Groot. Actually, she sort of becomes Groot for a time. There's a team up with Iron Man, and there's some really interesting stuff going on in here, and discussions of Pan-African identity, the Wakanda role in the world. Not sure how far I'll read into this series beyond this, but I did enjoy this trade. And now, I'm starting to feel bad, because I definitely had enough books this month to do a Women's History Month segment. Aster of Pan, Black Magic, Shuri, Robin Hood. I could have gathered all of those together. Maybe next year. Because I do have another book that straddles the BHM and WHM categories. Ironheart, 1 through 12. Riri Williams is trying to mix her research work at MIT and her superheroic work. And there's some personal growth and relational work happening as well. And sometimes it gets to be a bit too much for her. There were enough crossovers to make me wonder how this book was doing sales-wise. To me, that's what they call a tell about a comic. When every couple of issues, another major guest star shows up, clearly trying to boost the sales. But I like the character. I like the action. It's a good enough book, all things considered. And I read Deadpool Secret Agent 1 through 6. Through an insane course of events, Deadpool ends up taking the place of a secret agent within the off-books assassination and black ops division of the Department of Agriculture? You know, bureaucracy of that size, some things get funded that nobody knows about, things happen. So Deadpool takes over for this James Bond type of fella with lots and lots of violence and healing factor. He manages to take down the deadly Gorgon organization. Crazy, wacky, insane, all the things you'd expect from a Deadpool book. I wasn't sure what to expect, not having read a lot of Deadpool, but whatever my expectations were, this, I think, exceeded them. And an Archie Reed from Hoopla, Pep Digital 147. This one I picked out because of the number of interior design shows that I've been watching so far this year, and to be honest, the entire pandemic. So a collection called Fixer Upper about the Archie gang and various handyman and decorating scenarios I could not resist. There was a great story in here about Archie and his dad saving money by cutting down trees and splitting their own firewood. Until the last panel, when Mrs. Andrews points out that the copay at the doctor's office for the back pain and the liniment and the prescriptions and the eventual visits to the physical therapist were way more expensive than whatever money they saved doing the work themselves. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, the wrap-up of Something is Killing the Children was solid. Deadpool's Secret Agent was way better than it deserved to be. Ironheart was solid. Legion of Superheroes Earth War was quite good. Having no bizarro books this month worked out really well. But in terms of what I thought was my favorite, maybe I'm just being influenced by the new Superman and Lois TV show over on the CW. That's probably biasing me here. But I enjoyed Action Comics 600. Like a whole lot. So let's go with that as my favorite read of the month. If you have any questions or comments about these books, I would love to hear from you. You can send that feedback via email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And you can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening. And keep the pages turning.